the dust blows forward and the dust blows back. Down in Dachau Blues. All the pots you build. Well, the goldfish, the harmonious dance. Ratchet buds burst. The way you were dancing, I knew you'd never come back. Hello, welcome to Prince Drive Track. I'm your host, Darren. Today, uh, I'm going to be doing something different, which is introducing uh, everyone who has probably been subscribing for the last nine months and not getting any new episodes, and suddenly is wondering, why is there a new episode in this RSS feed? Uh, although probably not in those words, because I don't know that anybody ever really thinks about, you know, podcasts just being an RSS feed these days. Um, so, um, you know, the, the Prince Drive by Track obviously finished. Uh, I did some Stevie Wonder stuff. I feel like people who are listening to this probably know most of this. Um, but maybe so we've getting some new listeners who don't know. So uh, I covered all of Prince. Uh, I did one Beck album in the middle as a bonus. And then I covered a bunch of Stevie Wonder. And it kind of occurred to me that maybe other people... Um, who didn't have my voice, so I didn't, I wouldn't have to listen to it all the time. Would want to talk about music in the same way that I had. Now, I'll be honest with you, there are a couple of other podcasts out there that um, I'm not going to say they stole my format because I don't think they did. Uh, but there's there's a few that have kind of taken a more academic approach to you know specific albums. Um, I can't remember off the top of my head their names at this this point in time. Um, you know, but. I figured, well, maybe, uh, you know, let's kind of keep this thing going. You know, I, I feel like we've got a lot of subscribers, you know, to peek behind the curtain a bit. This, this you know, this still gets quite a few downloads. Uh, you know, people are still listening to it, um, still going through the back catalogue. So maybe let's give people something different to, to listen to. Maybe they don't hear my voice talking about something. Uh, maybe people have got different musical tastes um, other than Prince and Stevie Wonder. And so I reached out to, you know, uh, people that I know in the podcasting community and I said, would you want to talk about, um, you know, an album or an artist track by track? And, um, you know, some people said yes. Uh, th those projects will be coming probably sometime in 2021, most likely because of the whole current situation in terms of, uh, you know, uh, the planet being on fire and also, you know, a pandemic going on. Uh, I don't want to rush people into doing projects, um, but we have got one project that will at least be done this year and will start uh, from today, which as this episode goes up, should be the 1st of October and will basically take us all the way through um, October. One thing that I did like about this project is it basically had enough episodes that it would cover a full month. Uh, and I'm a fan for starting a project and knowing exactly when it's going to finish. And so, so I'm going to introduce everyone to Joel Barker, who will be covering Trout Mask Replica. Uh, and I'm sure there are a number of people out there who've probably heard of it, but there are some who aren't. Um, so, hello, Joel, and welcome to uh, what will not, long, for, you know, for much longer be called Prince Track by Track. But I guess we'll keep that name. Hi, Darren. Nice to talk to you. Uh, it's funny because obviously at this point you, you know, let's let's peek behind the curtain once more and tell everyone you've already recorded a bunch of episodes. So I've already heard your voice a ton of times, and which is always a weird thing when it comes to editing podcasts when you you kind of hear people talking and then eventually you talk to that person in real life and you kind of feel like you already know them because you've heard them talking so much. Which I th I think is kind of true of um, you know the the whole thing with podcasts anyway you know that most podcasts are kind of um, you know people talking I don't know where else they would be and so you kind of get used to hearing those people's voices inside your head so Joel I've heard your voice a ton um, so I, I feel like. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, I apologize to everybody else who's been sub subscribed to this podcast and has been listening to me yammer on about Prince for a couple of years. Um, so, you know, I think we can just kind of go through, you know, I guess I've kind of already said what my thoughts are on, on how this this kind of podcast is going to continue. That is, you know, the brand of Prince Trap by Track will be presenting other albums Trap by Track. And so obviously the first one we're going to do, which I'm I'm sure will come as, uh, you know, a completely uh, left wing choice for most people is going to be Trout Mask Replica. Um, and so I don't know if you want to just kind of explain to maybe people who've never heard about it before, maybe Prince fans, uh, maybe Stevie Wonder fans. I'm not sure who's still subscribed. Uh, just, you know, what the album is, um, you know, when it was recorded, who was on it. Uh, just the basic kind of, you know, uh, gist of, of exactly, uh, you know, what the album was. And then maybe kind of go into, you know, why you feel you want to kind of cover it. Sure. Well, um, Trout Mask Replica uh, was recorded and released in 1969. Uh, and it was by Captain Beefheart and his magic band. Captain Beefheart was the, not nom de plume, nom de music, I guess, of Don Van Vliet, uh, who 
was born in 1941 in California. Um, he was a, as as a youth, he was a, 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 a art, artistic prodigy, a sculptor. Um, his parents moved him out to Lancaster, California, and he uh, fell in with Frank Zappa and got into music uh, through his association with Zappa. And Captain Beefheart, the magic band, initially his magic band, uh, started up as kind of a, a hard blues R&B band out of, out of the high desert here in California. Uh, the first album, uh, Safe as Milk, has Ry Cooter on it. Uh, it's already starting to stretch out in some kind of unusual directions, but its, it's basis is garage rock and, and psychedelic blues music. Um, with the uh, second album, Strictly Personal, uh, has more of a psychedelic edge, partially due to some production decisions that I know Van Vliet was not super crazy about. Um, and uh, he was then given the opportunity uh, by Frank Zappa to record, uh, to create an album entirely to his to his desires. He could he could Van Vliet was given carte blanche to produce whatever he wanted um, on on this record. And what he came up with uh, through a laborious process of writing many of the songs on the piano, which was an instrument he didn't really know how to play. Um, and he could not read or write music, so he would uh, have his band members, mostly John French, the drummer, transcribe uh, this music. And his entire band lived in the same house in uh, here in California, uh, Woodland, Woodland Hills, um, uh, rehearsed 16-hour days to, to produce this music that, uh, that Van Vliet was writing. And then they recorded this double album uh, called Trout Mask Replica, which is uh, the... the the comparison that I, I usually that I frequently use is it's kind of the Finnegan's Wake of rock music. It's this daunting, strange, somewhat off-putting album that uh, it's made it onto the Rolling Stone 100 Greatest Albums of All Time list, uh, and yet it's kind of more talked about than actually listened to. And there's a great uh, Vox.com video that is called something like Why This Horrible Sounding Album is a Work of Genius or something like that. And it it has a reputation as being this really strange, abrasive, uh, unsettling record. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I was kind of aware of it. Um, I mean, uh, I, I, I don't know if you if you remember, but around the time when um, Frank Zappa died, which was like December 93, I think it was around that time. That sounds right. Or 94. Yeah, sometime around there. Um, I, you know, I remember obviously uh, there were a few documentaries after his death that I saw and they kind of talked about his music and stuff. And, you know, I, I was kind of aware of Frank Zappa just because, you know, it, it, when it comes to like, you know, record collecting kind of stuff, uh, obviously Frank Zappa, you know, a lot of people would collect his music. And so in some of the magazines that I was reading at the time, some of the music magazines, they would they would constantly and I don't know why, but there would always be like an article about Frank Zappa every few months where they would talk about mm -hmm. like his back catalog. And, you know, obviously he was also kind of a bit obsessive about like remastering some of his back catalog. And, you know, there's different versions of the, the albums that he released because he went back in and like added more bass and all this kind of stuff. So. You know, like obviously Frank Frank Zappa as a you know was was kind of very well known as this kind of musical titan. Obviously, you know, died way too young, and um, you know, I, I think also his sons have you know kind of preserved his legacy and kind of kept that mm -hmm. going for the last I don't know twenty twenty something years. I think we're going to be reaching a point now where you know Frank Zappa's music has been kind of preserved by his sons longer than you know he was actually recording. Um, and so through that, I think, you know, if some of the documentaries would talk about some of the other artists that he worked with. And I certainly remember, you know, uh, mentions of, you know, his work with Don Van Vliet and, you know, how he had been, you know, a producer and kind of, you know, would work with other musicians, but basically to give them freedom. Obviously, this is something that Frank Zapp himself was a bit obsessed with, wasn't it? You know, like kind of. Um, constantly trying to push boundaries in terms of music and different genres and all that kind of stuff. But also, you know, he had that whole, you know, you can't, you can't do that. What the hell's the title? That, that the, all the albums about you can't do that on stage anymore. That kind of, um, and the kind of railing against censorship. Mm -hmm. And so it, it felt very much like um, Don Van Vliet kind of fit into that, that part of Frank Zappa's personality where, um, Frank Zappa was very much like, you know, do whatever you want. And I think that's what, you know, Trout Mask Replica is kind of maybe the ultimate, um, maybe kind of the ultimate result of that, of like, you know, here is an artist who was given the opportunity to do 
literally anything um you know and when i was when i was at school one of the things that i did was i did a music a level and as part of that i became a little bit interested myself in the whole um uh i don't know what's it, like the 12 tone movement oh, yeah, yeah, you know sure. schoenberg all that kind of stuff like yeah kind of basically you know getting away from kind of stuff that is about um you know this is obviously going to be very kind of you know in the weeds for people who don't know much about music theory but obviously getting away from the idea of chords and chord progressions and different key centers and all that kind of just getting away from all that and just basically putting notes together in you know a di completely different way that there was that was not related to the way that music had been written for many decades and of course you know the whole kind of twelve tone movement and atonal, you know, and all that kind of stuff. It, uh, I mean, it kind of incited riots, you know, and people <laughs> were angry. Um, but these days, it's kind of seen as, you know, very kind of passe. It's like, oh yes, you know, they're, they're using all twelve notes instead of sticking to a scale. Like it's not, it's not seen as revolutionary now. Um, but I think the interesting thing about Trackmaster Replica, I think, is within kind of like popular music, it's not like kind of Trout Mask Replica was ever kind of accepted as, oh, it's, you know, it's a bit passe. And I think it's still, even to this day, I think maybe one of the reasons why it ends up on like, you know, some uh, kind of, you know, best of lists is because it is still kind of seen as groundbreaking. It's not like after Trout Mask Replica, there was like a dozen other people that imitated it. Whereas, you know, with the kind of 12-tone movement and stuff, and uh, in particular stuff like chance music and, you know, minimalism, and like there's a, there's a certain progression throughout the kind of 20th century of, of where kind of what, what we would see as classical music kind of went in these different directions. Directions that, you know, I've, some people feel is unlistenable. Uh, but I, I don't think that's the case. You know, I think there's some good stuff written by by some of those guys that, you know, kind of challenges the listener. But it's, you know, it's it's kind of interesting. And it's, you know, it's not like Mozart or Beethoven, or whatever, but it's, you know, it's a completely different form. And I think that's kind of true. I would say personally, haven't I, I, I'll be honest with you, I've only ever listened to Trout Mask Replica a few times through. <laughs> it's not like I'm intimately familiar with it. Obviously, throughout the process of me, you know, editing these episodes, I am getting more familiar with it. Uh, but I don't know, maybe that's just my feeling, like it just feels like there wasn't, it. like even these days it is seen as a kind of, uh, you know, maybe like in the kind of genre of like outsider art, like it, it's someone doing something that is so completely disconnected from the mainstream that uh, for a lot of people it's very hard to kind of understand what's happening. Yeah, the, there's absolutely nothing like it. And there's nothing that can prepare yeah. you really for what it sounds like before you hear it, unless you've heard some of don van vliet's other music that that's really the only thing that that's going to give you an an, uh, an indication of what you might what you might be in for when when you first hear it. it it's it it's this completely singular creation that is dependent upon this this very strong personality and who is willing to kind of browbeat his band into producing this music that um, bore no resemblance to anything that that had existed in popular music before or since um, and was then was given as you say absolute freedom by by Zappa to to produce this and record it and release it which with, without Zappa's uh, giving him that opportunity this album would not exist without his band being this kind of uh, this group of malleable young people who looked up to him and were willing to put up with the kind of psychological torments he put them through to to create this music it would not exist it, it's there's there were a lot of stars that had to align for this album to happen uh this double album to happen and uh the, it, it really is this the the line that i think zappa used and and gets quoted a lot when people are talking about it is it's it's delta blues meets free jazz and i can see why that would be the the tagline that people would give it but i don't think that cuts it in terms of what it actually sounds like and what the experience is of listening to it and what its legacy is in in rock music and and it's it's an album that's absolutely fascinated me from the first time i heard it um that i i've i fell in love with that i've listened to dozens of times and one of the the reasons that uh, of the the different records that i that i pitched to potentially do this i i was kind of curious to see if if the music was it was not passe but if it still had the ability if it still had the shock of the new if it still felt like um when i was 
uh, with the guests that I would talk to, if there was still the experience of this really, there's nothing that prepares you for this. This still feel really feels like a fresh and exciting and vertiginous and kind of sometimes terrifying musical experience. And uh, parting the curtain uh, that we have been recording, working on this show for a while, and that I've recorded several episodes, uh, the answer thus far seems to be yes. It is still a, th there's still nothing that gives you any indication of what this is going to sound like. There's nothing that it, that will lay the groundwork for what you're about to hear, for what it, what kind of feelings that it produces in the listener. Um, just the, the, the scope and range of the kind of sounds that you that you will hear on the album um some people will immediately be turned off by it and want nothing to do with it uh people who are have an inbuilt uh dislike for any kind of dissonance are are probably not going to get into this album because it it's you've got uh instruments playing a, not atonally but polytonally they'll be playing in different keys at the same time um producing these odd kind of uh, holographic three-dimensional effects where you have no idea what key you're in, what rhythm anyone is playing in, and yet it all seems to hang together in, like, a, uh, to use one of my guests' descriptions, an exploded diagram. Um, and, and so if, if that's, you know, if you're the kind of person who wants to hear, as many popular music listeners do, a pretty melody and a beat you can dance to. Uh, there's not much on this record for you, probably, um, but I still think that it's an experience worth having for for anyone who loves music. And you may decide uh, this, you know, this is not for me. I, I can't, I can't deal with this. But it's um, for those of us who do love the album, who have, who are passionate about it. Um, it there's a kind of almost zealotry to a Captain Beefheart fan that we. We, we really do proselytize for, for his music and for this record because it is, there's nothing comparable. And I think, uh, I you know, personally, I, I think what's interesting is, you know, you mentioned the Vox piece. Uh, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm obviously a fan of uh, of the different... Uh, I, I'm not sure that they're doing them as, as much these days, but, but they, they did various different kind of musical things. Um, they, they did one about the um, that snare sound that is everybody, everywhere, you know, like the, the orchestral hit, like, um, you know, stuff stuff that's kind of, um, you know, just kind of taking taking little pieces of, of kind of music apart. And yeah, they did they did a whole thing. I think it's mostly only about Frownland, though, isn't it? The uh, the Vox thing, or is there another one that's mostly about the album? Because I think there's the one that's kind of takes apart the kind of opening of Frownland um, piece by piece, and then the, it, it does that also. It kind of also talks about the album as well, doesn't it? More generally, it it does. And there's also an excellent video by uh, Samuel Andreev where he goes through from a music theory perspective and really breaks down what's going on in Frownland, which is the first song on the album. And yeah. it's also one of the most immediately uh, abrasive and unsettling songs on the album. Uh, so they, they really like right out of the gate, you're being kicked into this kind of unfamiliar musical terrain. And, and Andreev does a fantastic job of really breaking down what's actually going on in terms of the, the diff different rhythms that are being played simultaneously, the different uh, keys that the band is in uh, simultaneously. And the, the realization that, that many people, those who love the album, eventually, if they don't know beforehand, if they haven't read about it beforehand, if they're, they experienced it without preconceptions, there is the sense when you first hear it that everyone's just kind of, playing their own thing and no one's listening to each other and it's this this uh mishmash of essentially people making a lot of noise and the the realization that eventually strikes again if you didn't know beforehand is that it's supposed to sound like that it's intentional everything is planned out beforehand and very meticulously constructed so it's not there's virtually no improvisation on this album from the musicians the improvisation comes from uh, Dan, Don Van Vliet saxophone playing and the kind of laissez-faire approach he took to actually rehearsing with the band and fitting his lyrics to what they were doing. So he he's given he is the one on the album who has the freedom to produce something like his uh, gloriously untutored 
saxophone solos, uh, the band is playing stuff that has been very, very meticulously rehearsed and is planned and is is very intentional. Yeah, which I, which is why I kind of mentioned, uh, you know, Schoenberg and and uh, you know the atonal movement right. and that kind of stuff because that like a lot of that is similar in that it sounds like. Um, you know, the musicians basically are just making a noise and it's not in a certain key and it's all over the place. Uh, but, you know, the theory behind it is very, very strong and it's extremely detailed. And, you know, there's all kind of rules about, you know, which notes can be played and, you know, you can't accidentally kind of slip into a key, you know, mm-hmm. stuff like that. And some of that kind of got, you know, fro- kind of got changed a little bit later with some of the, the later composers. Um, but this does contrast a little bit with stuff that went on in the 60s, which was kind of, uh, I guess, uh, by that point, they were kind of, you know, most of the, the kind of modern composers have moved into chance music, uh, which is stuff where people would like roll a dice and they would decide, you know, which key they were in based on that. And, you know, so stuff would be kind of heavily improvised. Um, so like you say, it does kind of have the impression of, uh, you know, being improvised, but you know the band themselves obviously were very kind of tightly rehearsed, and you know it's it's kind of actually more more like the kind of the stuff from the early twentieth century where there was kind of a lot of um, you know theory and stuff behind it. Uh, but of course, you know, uh, I think to some people it will just end up still sounding like a cacophony of noise. Um, That's probably but true. I think yeah, but but, uh, but again, like that is that is what is that's intentional. Like that is that is what you know they were going for. Like what you hear, I, it's really weird because there's there's this kind of theory that I've always had that um, you know eventually if you give you know creative people enough money so they don't have to worry about money, uh, or you give them enough freedom so they don't have to worry about you know like a record label or you know a publisher, or then you know you kind of reach the ultimate. You know if you think about the composers of, you know, the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th century, uh, you know, they were being paid by royalty to write music and they were being paid, you know, to write specific music. And, you know, there's a reason why, uh, certainly in the early 20th century, you know, you have English composers that are writing a lot of kind of jingoistic stuff. It's because, you know, they're being paid by people who want that kind of music. Mm-hmm. And I think when you eventually get to the point in the 60s where some musicians are given this freedom and are just told, you know, write whatever you want and we will release it no matter what, then this is, you know, this is where you get the more interesting kind of experiments. I mean, I would say, in a way, Prince is kind of like that. You know, nobody told Prince what to do. And, you know, he ended up making beautiful music for 39 albums. And obviously I've talked about all of that. Uh, But there were times where Prince took, you know, a left turn and kind of went against what people were expecting. And that was because he had the freedom to do that. You know, Warner Brothers were always going to release his albums up until, you know, he got into a fight with them. Um, And I think that kind of freedom is always interesting to see what happens. Of course, at the other end of it, uh, sometimes then you end up with something like The Room, where, (laughs) you know, someone gives someone gives, you know, Tommy Wiseau too much money and he just makes the worst film ever made because he has no actual artistic merit. Whereas if you have someone like Don Van Vita and, and Frank Zappa, who do, you know, they are artists, then what you get is something that is completely different, that does, you know, that does at least, you know, have artistic merit. I'm sure there's people out there who are fans of The Room. It's a terrible film. Like, it's a terrible, boring film. Don't let anybody kind of tell you it's this cult hit or whatever. It's it's a terrible film. Don't watch it. Um but, you know, so it's always interested me in terms of like, you know, the relationship that, you know, most artists have when people complain about pop music or whatever. I think that's because, you know, it, part of the process is you have to please someone. And, you know, a lot of the times it is the labels or if you're a filmmaker, it is the studio, um, you know, unless you're someone who ends up being so successful, you know, that, that you can kind of take the strategy of which I think, you know, Brad Pitt, uh, Matt Damon, various others have talked about this, where you do one for yourself and then you do one for the studio. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there is, there are the, the kind of idea of you have to make something that is popular so you can make some money so you can then go away and do something artistic. Uh, I think that is something that's kind of been true mostly in the 20th century. Before that point, I don't think there was really a concept of artists being able to do whatever they want. And so it was kind of interesting in the 20th century to see you know, if you leave classical music to the point where people are able to do anything, well, then you end up with John Cage writing, you know, um, a, a song that is basically three minutes of silence. Like that's that's the logical conclusion, I feel, of where classical music ended up. Um, and I think the same is kind of true of certainly in this case, I would say, you know, jazz and blues. Once, once you give someone, 
you know, obviously jazz throughout the kind of the 40s, 50s, 60s had been kind of leaning in this direction anyway, you know, being kind of heading towards this, uh, you know, the kind of improvisation, you know, the stuff that Miles Davis was doing. Like there's a lot of artists, you know, a lot of jazz artists who were kind of pushing the boundaries. And it feels like Trout Mask Replica is kind of the ultimate, like, you know, do whatever you do, whatever you want. And, you know, so if so, as long as you've got a vision, which I would say is the thing that is missing from Tommy Wiseau, as long as you have a vision, then, it, you know, what you end up with is definitely something that is a piece of art that is worth discussing. And I think that's, you know, one of the good things about Trout Mask Replica is it does actually, you know, it lends itself to a lot of discussion. Some people would disagree with the amount of discussion I did over Prince tracks, and some of those maybe don't need some discussion. But I think in this case, we're talking about something that, you know, certainly merits uh, discussion, uh, definitely track by track, I would say. Well, certainly, I mean, 50 years on, it, the, the album came out in 1969, so 51 years on, it, it's still it is still worth talking about and it is still something where uh, i mean you've had to edit down the episodes I, I can talk with the guests that i've had for like an hour and a half about any individual track on this album most of which clock in at under 3 minutes they they tend to be very short tracks but there's an enormous amount uh, compressed in into this this music uh, on the on the topic of of freedom what's the interesting dichotomy in trout mask replica is that it is a, a product to some degree of unfettered creativity and freedom to the point where Van Vliet was given the opportunity to create this music however he wanted. Uh, he chose to write it on an instrument that he didn't really know how to play, uh, so it was composed of these little fragments as he would sort of pick out and feel out what he what he wanted and what he wanted it to sound like. But at the same time, it's also a product of, of just an absolute iron control that the music for starters required an enormous amount of discipline to be able to play and second of all van vliet had his band within his his iron grip and used some rather cult-like methods of of keeping them keeping them off balance and and keeping them under his sway to to a large degree the the process of producing this album for the band was undeniably traumatic sometimes physically so and uh I I do know someone who refuses to listen to this album not because it's a challenging listen but because of the amount of suffering that the band went through to produce uh to produce the album as as it stands which I understand that and I also think that it's a great shame that the amount of work and suffering that they put in that that it, it colors uh this person's ability to to enjoy the record. Robin Hitchcock has a line that I think I've quoted on a couple of episodes where he says, you know, they went through this horrible experience, but at the end of it, they got Trout Mask Replica, which is this absolutely phenomenal piece of art. But many yeah. of them did stick around with him, and uh, some of it was the sway of his his personality, which could be, from what I understand, ex extremely charming, as well as, as this kind of... Uh, intimidating terrifying figure and some of it i think was they understood the value in what they were doing that they they realized that they were making something that had there was nothing comparable i, I mean and i do think that on some level they probably uh, on the subject of money i think that there was some sense that maybe this would be successful I mean, zappa had produced records that were um, fairly avant-garde by the standards of stuff that was being produced in rock music and was doing quite well. You know, had a record deal. Was was making money. Was able to tour. You know, large venues with his band. And so I. And you know, the late nineteen sixties were a time of, of you know, things were getting wilder and and more psychedelic. And bands that, under other sets of circumstances, would would quite possibly never have achieved. Would have you know remained garage bands were were achieving large fairly large measures of success. So I do think there was some sense that they, they really did feel like, you know, we are going to become very successful as musicians playing this, this very out music, which to some degree, the album was more successful than one might think based on how challenging it could be. It actually did chart in England, which is, is the idea of this record charting is, is astonishing to me, but a lot of that had to do with the, uh, the influence of, uh, John Peel, the British DJ, who was an enormous Beefheart fan and and would uh, would push for his records uh, repeatedly. Um, and I think he was also a big Zappa fan as well, if I remember rightly. Um, 
in fact, John Peel was an enormous fan of everybody, basically. He, he was a great um, booster for music. He was a great booster he, for music and, and was yeah. very willing to to go down uh, the path less trodden and and certainly would uh, would stake his claim for for bands that that he that he truly loved. His championship of the fall is is an indicator of that. His his, his I believe he said that on a few occasions that the fall was his favorite band. Um I think there were a few times as well where he had like, uh, you know, certainly during the early days of Pulp, he had like Jarvis Cocker stay at his farm because he had nowhere else to stay. <laughs> so so he would kind of like, he would kind of crash at John Peel's because John Peel was like, yeah, sure, you're a musician. Come and stay over. I don't mind. Um, but yeah, no, I think John Peel is also one of the other kind of, I, I'm sure I remember him talking about Frank Zappa and also talking about Tramp Mask Replica. Um, and you know, Captain Beefheart, that was like, uh, you know, that was something I think the, the reason, the reason why I think Captain Beefheart probably charted over here might have something to do with the fact that at the time, uh, well, not only with the Beatles going psychedelic, of course, uh, as I'm sure everybody would remember. Um, but you had stuff like the, uh, Bonzo Dog Doodah Band as mm -hmm. well, like charting and, you know, like, so there was a kind of a weird kind of avant-garde movement over here as well during the kind of late sixties where kind of very unusual records would chart and do quite well. Um, and I think mainly because the British public were just like, sure, we'll buy anything, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, rationing had only finished a few years beforehand, you know, let's, let's just like, let's just try and do as much as we possibly can. Um, you know, uh, but yeah, I, I think, I think kind of, you know, it, it is interesting that the fact that we are like, you know, half a century on and basically I, I don't think there's been anything that's kind of, uh, match track mask replica in terms of unless somebody knows about some albums out there that are that are kind of as challenging as this then uh, I'm sure they can let us know uh, but yeah it's it's it still kind of stands and I think I think as well that maybe there's uh, there's a little bit of this that happens which is certain albums uh, you know they just become a name that people hear mm -hmm. um, and over time you're like oh yeah that's that album from like you know many years ago. Um, you know, uh, if if anybody is on social media, you'll know that you know there's a there's a number of well, let's say on YouTube, there's a number of reaction channels where you have kids reacting to music from like ten years ago, and they haven't heard of like bands like Outkast and stuff. You like, I you know, how can you not know about Miss Jackson? You know, like it, it's that kind of thing. So the fact the fact that this record's more than fifty years old, I'm sure there are people out there who who know the name. Um, but who probably haven't kind of listened to it or listened to it in you know in any depth past maybe hearing the opening bars of Frownland and saying nope this is not for me. Um, so hopefully this this project will help uh, you know kind of get into the album and, and really kind of let people know what is what is past the very challenging opening track. It's almost like Don Van Vliet was like you know I'm gonna I'm gonna literally bombard you with noise at the start and if you can't cope with it then that's it you you know you don't deserve to listen to the rest of this album. Um, you know, almost like a challenge to the listener, which I think feels like that's kind of what his personality was like anyway. Yeah, at Frownland is definitely a line in the sand of of this is what we're going to do, and if you're into it, you're welcome. I mean, even the ly lyrically, you know, take my hand and come with me. It's it's this this introduction to this is what what I have created. This is this world that that I'm you know no shortage of ego there. Um, you're welcome to come along. But the music makes it pretty clear, like it's not going to be necessarily an easy journey, and you know we're not going to hold your hand either. Uh, it's we're or we're not going to carry you. It's it's you're you're to some degree on your own as you navigate this landscape. Um, I, and I I should add that it's also it's a funny album, and it's it's there's a lot of of light and. Um, and kindness in his in his lyrics and in his it's not. Uh, it's forbidding musically in some ways, but there's also the, an odd sort of cheerfulness to it that I think makes it even more difficult for people to get a hold of. Because if if it's music that's challenging but also extremely uh, dark and self serious, I feel like that's something that that is a recognizable, understandable quantity. Like if you you know you're discussing other albums that are challenging, if you take something by say Scott Walker. Um, or one of his late period albums. That's very challenging music, uh, but it's it's also and and there is a rather dark sense of humor to it. But it, it's it's a recognizable quantity as a kind of serious art music. Whereas this is an album with a guy on the front who's got a fish mask on his face, and you know songs with titles like Hair Pie, 
and there's a fart joke that that opens one of the one of the tracks so there's this mix of this very daunting avant-garde music and this lightness and silliness and kindness that that goes along with it that that makes the whole whole experience um you would think that would leaven it but i i do think in some ways it makes it even more um even more difficult to parse because it's this un the whole thing is this uh unexpected combination of elements this bricolage of different uh styles and sounds and and shapes that is constantly changing and mutating from track to track um all while smiling at you so it can it can be a, yeah. a it can be an odd it's certainly an odd first time listen um but for those of us who have listened to it many many times it it kind of feels like it when you really really hear what's going on in this album and when you really get into it it's it's like the only music that really feels three dimensional and everything else kind of starts to feel feel a little flat by comparison I mean, I disagree that the other music feels flat in comparison because I'd say that at least Stevie Wonder and Prince are at least on the same. Oh well, I'm not. On, I'm not trying to. to yeah. let, let me let me refer, <laughs> let me rephrase that. Um, there is a the the combination of different ton, time signatures and tonalities that happens in the music gives it this this sense of popping out at you in really strange and unique and almost organic ways that it is again there's nothing that compares to it and that's not to say that there are not other works of musical genius some someone who has come up on a few different episodes (laughs) of this is brian wilson who was another person who through tooth and nail managed to achieve a certain degree of freedom in what he was able to do uh, often to the dismay of his band, who just wanted to keep producing hits, and given the same kind of freedom that that to some degree that Van Vliet had produced some of the most uh, transcendent um, pop music, uh, and I don't say pop music in any kind of derogatory way, uh, but like pop, you know, the, some of the most beautiful orchestral music within the realm of of pop and rock that has ever been produced and so you know genius and creativity and beauty take different forms and for those of us who have a taste for dissonance and spikiness and things that are are to and i wish i had sourced this quote beforehand but someone described this album as like trying to befriend a porcupine and for those of us who have that kind of taste this there there's nothing comparable to this but if you take i mean you mentioned people like stevie wonder and prince you have these these phenomenal talents who you know play every instrument on their albums and produce these works of uh orchestrated uh genius that are uh, again they're they are incomparable but in a very different way yeah i mean i'm just joking because obviously i've spent like 600 episodes of this podcast talking about them so you know i feel like you know there's some merit to the stuff they do but i didn't want uh, but obviously... i didn't want to make it sound like i'm 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 putting <laughs> down other artists in in comparison to this it's that that wasn't my intention no having having to listen having listened to some of the episodes you've already recorded i think i i understand where you're coming from joel this is this is such a, a kind of different album that you know I mean, and again it isn't it isn't pop music you know if you're talking about pop music then you know prince and stevie wonder you know they're two of the geniuses of pop music prince tried his hand at jazz uh, i would say probably not quite as successful as, as he probably thought he did um so you know, I I understand that obviously this is you know this he's not he's not trying to be a pop music you know icon like they they were. He's obviously you know uh, being himself, which is exactly what I want from an artist. You know, like you don't want somebody to kind of uh, I, I mean I hate the term sell out, but you know you don't want somebody to do something because they think it's popular. Um, you know, listening to listen to someone basically uh, like we say, given as as much freedom as is humanly possible. Uh, to make the music that he exactly wanted to make, uh, which is true of both Stevie Wonder and Prince as well. They both had very good deals where they could do whatever they want. Um, and I think that's always something that interests me in terms of art is like, you know, allow someone to, this is, you know, this is how you end up with like Picasso and Dali, you know, like people who were, were so wealthy that they were able to paint whatever they wanted and then whatever they wanted to paint ended up being so kind of, you know, 
completely off the beaten track that it redefined art. Um, and I think that's kind of the same with, you know, with Track Max Replica. It's so completely different uh, that it does, it kind of, it, it makes it hard for anybody to even try and kind of do the same thing because you're just, you're never going to, you're either going to be aping it uh, or or people are going to accuse you of trying to copy it. And uh, it's so unique that it's, it's you know, it's like there's no other way that any other artist could ever come close to, to doing that. And I think that's what makes this an interesting album to talk about as well. It's just, uh, you know, it has this place uh in in you know music history where it is you know it is i would say it's a kind of almost a crossover between you know the kind of the 20th century kind of classical composers and you know the the experimentations they were doing and you know kind of jazz and popular music you know it, it's combining everything and you know it's it's a challenging record uh but it's certainly an interesting one it, it is a challenging record that that has its if you are willing to undergo the challenges if you're willing to put in the time on the record it it has these moments of of real transcendence that are that are worth you know getting through some of the bits that might seem a little more challenging um i mean if you're starting off with Frownland is definitely a throwing down of the gauntlet but as you get into the album you get a song like orange claw hammer which is just this gorgeous sea shanty which is not something that you would ever think that you're going to get based on the sound that you get from the first track on the album and and the the, i mean kind of the weird thing is i would say you know if you think of someone like prince who basically uh, you know with every new album he wanted to kind of try something different and kind of you know move into different genres and try different sounds and kind of with this album basically you get that every track (laughs) it feels like uh you know it feels like a career in miniature, you know, like every single track, it feels like, you know, Don Van Vliet is like, I don't want this to sound like the previous track or the next track. So let's, you know, do something completely different. Um, and I, th- I think that's kind of one of the things that he shares with, um, you know, other musical geniuses, even something like Frank Zappa, you know, Frank Zappa was someone who, you know, he did songs that were kind of popular and, you know, he kind of, I mean, I think he only ever had one legitimate hit, which I think was uh, Valley Girl, <laughs> uh, which is kind of weird. Um, but in terms of like each album, you know, Frank Zappa was somebody who would, from album to album, you know, he would completely change genre or, you know, he'd he, like everything was kind of about trying different things. And I think that's true of Track Master Replica. From, you know, as you go through track by track, it is literally almost as if each time he's he's trying a completely different genre or you know tearing down the way that he approached you know the previous track and just approaching it in a completely different way you know on the next track um and i think that's like you say there is there is you know some rewards to re-listening to the album like i say i've only really listened to it through a few a few times obviously as i go through and edit these 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 episodes i am going to be listening to it a lot more um and i think you know the kind of the reward that you get from from re-listening to it uh, is different to the the reward you get from listen, you know, re-listening to stuff by Stevie Wonder or by Prince or you know by anybody else who is you know uh, somebody who comes up with like a catchy tune. Um, you know, there's a there's a certain reward to, to kind of you know knowing the chorus, but I think you know this this is a different kind of reward that you get from kind of breaking it down and and actually kind of uh, listening to these tracks piece by piece. Yeah, the the through line of you know of you going from Prince to to Stevie Wonder and then me hijacking your show for a while to do Trout Mask replicas. We're we're dealing with artists who um, produce from a place of restless creativity, of just constantly wanting to push yeah. what they're doing and push what the audience is hearing, and would never sit down and think, "I'm going to do another album that sounds just like the last album, so it sells really well." Like I, I, I can't imagine Prince or Stevie Wonder or Don Van Vliet thinking in those terms, despite despite the fact that the kinds of music they produced are extremely, extremely different. I, I, there's that same sense of we are, are constantly moving forward and trying new things. And uh, just the fact that this is a double album, I feel like is almost a showing off of the the font of creativity that this band was at this period of time like look how much stuff we've produced look at how many songs are on here look at how many different sounds you're going to get on this album. it's it's there's this um delight in in showing off to some degree and i don't mean showing off in a negative way but like look at all this cool stuff we made element to the album that that is is rather is very charming um in terms of influence and you know people anything sounding like this i feel like if you were influenced by don van vliet if you then go out 
to try and produce music that sounds like the music he and the magic band produced, you're sort of missing the point because the, the bands that have taken inspiration from him tend to not sound much like him. And I think that's because the, the influence of the album is you can remake rock music into whatever you want it to be. You can reshape this, this genre, this medium into anything you can make it for you. And so that, you know, leads to uh, people as diverse as, you know, uh, David Byrne and uh, um, MF Doom, you know, claiming claiming influence from from Beefheart, uh, you know, then the through line there is we have these restless creatives who are are suddenly shown there's a there's a third wave there's another option there you can you can do whatever you like this this rock and roll will contain anything see now with French Track by Track I did actually bring on guests who'd never heard some of the songs before and made them basically listen to it for the first time just before we record it so uh, I got some very interesting perspectives because people were like I don't know what this song is about or also they had completely different ideas about what the song was about uh, so that was kind of fun but I think obviously it's a little harder to do that with this uh, with this album I don't know have you thrown anyone in the deep end on on, uh, on, on any particular track no um, not so far I did kind of want to talk to someone who had either never heard it before or didn't like it because I wanted to get that perspective as well. But thus far I have not had any takers uh, on, on that. I've tried a couple of people and, uh, and they've, they've begged off uh, doing it. So most of the people who I've talked to have been familiar with it. Uh, One person, um, David Lipson, who is the first guest on, on the the show on, on Frownland and, and appears on a few other episodes as well is a close personal friend of mine. Uh, he was not familiar with the record until I started this project and asked him if he would participate. But he's a person who has extremely uh, broad and um, idiosyncratic listening tastes, much much like mine. He he's he's very he's very open to dissonance and to challenging structure and to, to unusual music. So he took to it immediately and and had had quite a bit to say about it there's he did not experience the initial uh revulsion that some people get when they first hear this album of of kind of like the reaction one might have to like seeing a particularly nasty insect where they're like oh god get this thing away from me um i i haven't i haven't managed to get anyone who had that reaction on the show yet but i haven't recorded all the episodes so there's still a possibility yeah, we could we could we could still hear someone get extremely angry at you and just yell at you and say, "What are you made me listen to?" I have occasionally wondered if you're going to hold a grudge against me for the rest of my life for making you listen to this album um, over and over again in in preparation for for doing these tracks. So I'm I'm pleased to hear that you seem to be at least somewhat enjoying the process. Well, I you, the thing is, I I did a music A level. I've got grade eight music theory, and I play the saxophone. So I'm you know um it's not i mean i actually when i when i was at university before i dropped out uh i wrote an essay about uh schoenberg and berg and i can't remember the other guy alban uh and 12 tone music and atonal music and stuff so i'm you know i'm kind of used to people you know doing kind of and and also i you know over the years being a saxophone player you end up just listening to a lot of jazz Mm. So I'm kind of familiar with this kind of stuff. So, um, you know, and like I say, when Frank Zappa died, there was a little bit of a kind of resurgence over here in, in kind of some discussion about Trout Mask Replica and the stuff that he produced. And uh, and even some, I mean, Frank Zappa stuff is, is, is not, I mean, I think to kind of pop audiences, it might be seen as a bit challenging, but I think it's mo- like the kind of, like his 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 you know approach to music is something that i was kind of used to and so you know hearing this album it's it kind of makes sense to me it's not really uh it's not like i'm 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 kind of uh hating listening to the songs it's it's you know it's something that i'm kind of at least in theory used to um you know so it's you know from my from my background it's it's like okay yeah i get what they're doing you know like so <laughs> um so unfortunately you know i i don't resent anybody who has an enthusiasm about music joel so um, oh, I'm glad to hear that. If I can listen to myself ramble on about Prince for you know 500 something episodes, then uh, I think I can easily get through 28 episodes of you talking about uh, Trout Mask Replica. Well, since you're a horn player, I would be very interested to hear what you think of his saxophone playing. But we may have to take that discussion off air. <laughs> yes. Well, I will. I, I think we should wrap it up, and I'll say obviously, you know, tomorrow's episode will be Frownland. 
Um, and then, like I say, uh, you know, we, uh, what, what, I'm, what we're going to do is we're going to divide the, the, it into the two albums. So obviously we're going to go through the first album. Then there's a bonus episode that you're going to do, Joel, with, uh, I think, with a vocalist, I think yes. you said. Um, yeah. And then that will be kind of like the midpoint. Um, and then obviously we'll get into the second half. And then, like I say, there will be an episode at the end to wrap it all up, which will come on Halloween. So it will, you know, Best day of the year. Uh, wrap things up. Yes, quite neatly. Uh, well, what I like about this is we're starting it at the beginning of October and we're finishing on the last day of October. So I like a project that finishes uh, on time. Um, you know, like then I feel, I feel like just getting it across these thirty-one days. That's perfect. Perfect for me. That's how I like to. That's how I like to do my podcast. Um, get them neatly tied up like that. Ruthless efficiency. Um, although I was going to say. I, Yes, I mean, I did. Ha- I did have a second thought because obviously it dawned on me that we are getting close to the tenth anniversary of Don Van Vliet, and I didn't know if you know maybe we should delay it a little bit and finish around then. But I thought, no, 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 let's you know, let's do it now. Uh, let's not dwell on his death. You know, let's uh, you know, let's celebrate what he did in life, uh, which is how I feel about Prince as well. Um, you know, I start I started the Prince podcast on his birthday, not on the anniversary of his death, because I wanted to remember his life and not his death, and I feel that's you know the best way to do things. Um, but yeah, for anybody out there, you know, who's interested in Don Van Vliet, obviously we are, you know, we are approaching, you know, 10 years uh, since he died. And, you know, I think talking about his work is probably the best way to honor him. I agree. It is his achievements in, in music and in art deserve to be deserve to be remembered and discussed. Uh, so you can join Joel tomorrow and every day for the next 30 days uh, talking about, um, you know, Trap Mask Replica, Trap by Track. Um, and you know, uh, hopefully everyone will enjoy it. Is there any social media that you want to plug or are you happy for people just to hear you plug it, um, for the next 30 days, basically? Yeah, I plug it on pretty much every episode. So I, I don't know that they, uh, that they need to, to suffer through that. I, I will say that, um, we have discussed with, uh, Steve Froy from, from beefheart.com, uh, about, uh, possibly, including these these shows up on beefheart.com and if anyone is interested in learning more about uh don van vliet captain beefheart beefheart.com is an excellent resource and i will say on twitter i you know i started and yet another twitter handle i god knows how many twitter accounts i've got at this point and uh which which is going to be uh at underscore track by track i couldn't get track by track i had to go with the underscore in front um and obviously i'll be i'll be tweeting out the the links for the episodes there for this uh, and obviously anything else relevant that uh, that Joel wishes me to tweet out, I'll put it on there. Um, and then obviously um, I'll also be, you know, retweeting it on the uh, Prince Track by Track account um, and, you know, promoting it where, wherever I can. I think also on Facebook, I think I'll put it on the Prince Track by Track uh, webpage there. Um, so, you know, uh, if everybody wants to follow along, they can obviously, uh, you know, follow it to underscore Track by Track. Uh, thanks for being my guest and obviously from now on taking over as the host uh, on track by track for the next uh, 30 episodes joel it's my pleasure darren thank you for the opportunity and otherwise goodbye